you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. We're way off, way, 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 way off the sermon schedule for this fall. I was reduced to Saturday sermon notes on canary yellow paper, which drives me crazy. They have this kind of paper that they make in like a light gray. If you order it online, it's a lot friendlier on the eyes. This canary yellow. Does it bother anyone else? It's such a weird color to write. But we're, we're way off our sermon schedule. That's all right. Um, I'm not doing it on purpose to those of you that are organized and linear and whatever. I promise the Sunday before Christmas will be on Christmas. Um, but I'm, I'm excited because I think we're really trying, we're, this series has really become a, a platform to really wrestle with the deepest of deep things. Um, we serve a God and, and we're a part of a religion that, that's, that believes in an order to this world that was, was created, that there's goodness that we can enter into that goodness, that there's a harmony that can come and a joy that can come when we enter into that. We don't have this distant notion of God or gods and this idea of this kind of fatalistic living that it, wrestling with ideas or trying to come at truth is just pointless. Like we actually, um, it's the beauty of the Bible is it reasons with us. The whole book of Proverbs is talking about applied reason and logic to life and, and wisdom is kind of entering in and harmonizing with life so that things are good. It brings about goodness. And um, So anyways, I'm excited because we're wrestling with those things and I hope you're excited too. But we're in Exodus chapter 20 and this kind of frames out this whole Big God series we're doing. And let me show you how that works. I'm going to just read through these and then I'll make the comment. But in Exodus chapter 20, The Ten Commandments, beginning in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Let me just pause for a second there. Showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Your kids are are heirs of the promise. They're they're covenant children. When, When you, we love your kids at this church. Uh, if you have babies in here, it really annoys like the 10 people around you. I never hear it. So just know that I could care less, but there's 10 people that... Re- but you, as far as I'm concerned, you can just bring them in and let them scream. And just switch where you sit so that you don't wear out the same group of people like each week. But we love your kids. They, they're not separate from you and, and we're going to do business with them 20 years from now when they finally are, are smart enough to, to get all this. It's like, no, they're part of this whole thing. God cares about your kids. They're heirs of the covenant, heirs of the promise. And God shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. God is saying this to adults, by the way. They're coming before Mount Sinai. They've they've purified themselves. In some sense, he's giving the Ten Commandments to the, the adults, the adult Israelites. And so when it's saying honor your father and your mother, there's plenty of verses in Scripture that talk about children being obedient. But this is speaking specifically to 
to those of us that are going to have aging parents that we would return the gratitude by, by honoring them in their old age when they're more dependent and we have to provide for them. Americans need to recover this. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then lastly, in, in rapid order, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, you guys can see it right here in my Bible. But that's a big paragraph and a big paragraph and an even bigger paragraph and kind of a long sentence and then short sentence, short sentence, short sentence, and then run-on sentence. Do you guys see that? You guys can see that? This last one, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor, is summing up what began with a couple of verses before, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie or give false testimony against your neighbor. Leverage untruth to win at the expense of somebody else and at the expense of, of truth that way. And that last one about covet sums all that up. And what we begin to realize here is God is setting out for this community the ethics by which they're supposed to live. So they've come from Egypt, and he's going to give them this overarching global ethics. And what I mean by global doesn't mean like, like the world, Europe and Asia. And I mean by like overarching. For you, my people, this nation of Israel, as you go out, here is your, your, your ethics. Here's your law. Here's, here's the umbrella. And he, he lays this out for him. It's overarching. And he's basically saying, listen, right off the bat, uh, you guys are under me and you're dependent. I'm big. Um, you're submitted to that. Uh, my will takes, takes precedence over your will. And he lays that out by saying, I'm God. Don't have any other gods. Don't make me small by profaning my name. Oh, by the way, if you don't pattern your schedule so that you remember me and submit to kind of in some sense my holy day, my holiness, that I'm the creator, if you don't pattern your time this way, you're going to begin to forget that I'm big. So here, keep this day holy. And then it flows down and it begins to say this. Okay, now having got that, so your relationship with me is going to be there and I'm big, now, now, don't kill somebody. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal from them. Don't lie against them. Don't injure your fellow man. And then, oh, by the way, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. What God is doing is he's basically saying this. It's not working. Did it work when I wrote the first time? Am I, am I writing in black again? Is that working? Kip? <laughs> Got any ideas, man? <laughs> All right. Okay, well, while, while we're talking about this, we'll play catch up with the drawing in a minute. But there's, we're relational beings. We have a relational God. We're in relationship with God. We're in relationship with other people. And there is a fabric of community that exists whether we acknowledge it or not. It, uh, we are knit together and we can't extricate ourselves from that and it's a family. Is it going? All right. I don't know how he does it. 
when you go to sign up for the Christmas Eve service, like right after the service, kind of right by that, that big blast wall, um, there's like six or seven or 20 computers in a row. They're all Macs, and they're arranged in descending order of size. When you go look at that, stand back, and, and you're looking at the personification of Kip. Um, okay. Is that drawing? All right. So God in the Ten Commandments is giving these global kind of overarching ethics. And he's basically saying this fabric of community underneath is held up and protected by these rules, these, these laws that I'm giving you. If you're killing your neighbor and whatnot, like, it's a destruction of community. Um, you guys are all my children. You're my family. Uh, that's the opposite of what I want. I don't want the destruction of community. I want the, the building up, the knitting together, the health of community, my family. Right? When you steal and take other people's stuff, you, you win and they lose. Something that, that would have belonged to them or could have belonged to them in a limited good society, you've now hoarded it or taken it or, or competed for it and you create, instead of a healthy environment, you create an unhealthy one. And God always intended for what the, the Hebrew word was shalom. And he always intended for this, the way things ought to be, this, this peace, and peace is not a small word there, it's just it's an all-encompassing, big, joyous, full, robust word. And so he's given these laws, and he's saying, if you get me right, and if you pattern your life so that you keep me, if you keep me right, then make sure also then that you keep your relationship right with others. Don't envy, don't covet. Now, the interesting thing happens that this is the law. And you can live with a mess in life and still obey the law. You can help create mess and still obey the law. Jesus came to a people that had gotten really good at keeping these laws but still harmonizing with a messy reality in a competitive world rather than getting what's really going on, that we're, we're, we're agents, we're ministers of reconciliation, that we're a part of rebuilding and, and re-knitting culture the way it was supposed to be, shalom. So Jesus, turn with me to Matthew. We get the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, 7 is Jesus with the Sermon on the Mount. Now Jesus comes... And Jesus is going to kind of basically say to these guys, like, look, I mean, if you're a parent, you get this. Like, you say something, and it means a lot, and then your kid comes back to you, you know, three hours later, and is like, well, but you said this. You know what I mean? And they did that, but they completely ignored what you meant. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? And you're just like, you, you're, you, you say nice things because it's your kids, you know, but you knew better. I heard that phrase in Dutch, in English, in body language my whole life. You know, I got that out. You knew better. Jesus is coming to a people that should have known better. And he's wiping it all clean and he's recasting God's plan for his people. And so listen to what we get here in um, Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Don't think I came to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Okay? Then we, and then he basically says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, who are really good at this, then I, I don't want anything to do with you. Now he moves on in verse 21, and this fascinating little formula. Listen to the way he says it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. We just read that, didn't we? Ten Commandments. It's right there. It's like in God's global ethical system. It says, You have heard that it was said long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother 
will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. There's things you can do that are against the cultural laws, and you're subject to man. What happens in your heart, the, you knew what I meant, says God, says Jesus. And if you violate that, you're, you're subject, you're accountable to me. So if you, in your heart, say you fool, if you're angry with somebody, you're destroying that relationship or that person or the part of that fabric that's the same thing that would have been destroyed if you would just flat out cut down that person. What Jesus is saying is he's saying this little piece of fabric that you exist and inhabit, if you kill someone, you destroy and cut that fabric. But killing them is not the only way. In your heart, being against them and trying to destroy them ruins or distorts or destroys the fabric of that society too. Jesus then goes on and says this, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. We just read that. It's in the Ten Commandments. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he goes on and says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better that you punish the body, that you lose part of the body, than for your whole body to come into judgment. That the act of adultery destroys relationship, destroys community, but if your mind is there or exists there or stays there or goes there, you're already beginning to destroy. This is kind of where those covet verses came in. And Jesus is saying, you guys, there's a global spirituality that's really what God was going for. It's grace-based. It's because you're His. It's because He loves you. It's because He sets you free. It's because He has a plan. It's because you want to be with Him. It's because you care. It's because He's big and other competing things are small, so you're willing to accept His will for your life. And you can... You can live by this law, that's great. But, but you're, you're going to really miss the heart. What's going on in the heart, what God really wants in your heart, what, what will come about from the right kind of heart. <clears throat> Justin and Trish, uh, with their kids, they, I picked this up because when I'm around them, they say it a lot. But the, they call their kids to account by saying, where's your happy heart? So when they start whining or getting angry or frustrated and start being against, Justin and Trish say, now where's your happy heart? And it's like, I, I love it. I start thinking, you know, it'd be really fun to use with the staff, you know. <laughs> now Kip, where's your happy heart? Um, this, that's where Jesus is going. And he's saying, I, I don't care just about externals, what... What this whole program was about was what's in your heart and being aligned with God that what God is about, bringing about a healthy family, is what you're willing to join and be about as well. Here's the fascinating thing about the law. Let me just back up just a second. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount by a bunch of what we call the Beatitudes. And, and the word there literally is happy and it's like, or blessed in a real full sense. And blessed are you who are pure in heart. Blessed are you, blessed are you. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And, and the crazy thing about that is I don't know any American that really camps on that. Because that phrase to us just is so, it's just tinny. It, 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 you know what I'm saying? It's thin. For us, peacemakers is a really thin thing. We, we think that peace, in this sense, is the absence of conflict. We think you only should be a peacemaker when conflict exists, right? It's like those people that try to like fix wars or make them go away, the Jimmy Carters, whatever. 
Like, that's the peacemakers. Man, there's no war going on in Bend. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I'm not a peacemaker. There's other things that I am. And I'm not a peacemaker. But what, what the, the, the Jewish view of peace, like I was trying to tell you, shalom, this goodness, is, is really about the presence of goodness. Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, those that promote health, that bring about goodness, that, that order their life, that, that order their passions and their desires such that everyone benefits. That's their joy. That's their pleasure. That's where they're at, where they're thinking, what they want. And that there's a presence of goodness. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so Jesus is in this whole thing. And he's given this global ethics and he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. And he's saying, it's all about what's in your heart. It's not just a couple laws. It's having a God so big that you come under that and are willing to join in what he's doing. It's in the heart. God looks on the inside. It's the inside of the cup, not the outside of the cup. And over and over and over again, Jesus says, look, don't you guys get it? You're supposed to know this. This, um, here's how we get to this. Let me just try and map it out. I don't know where I'm going to write it, but um, we start with this when we have a small God. We think we deserve. And if we think we deserve, then we think we have a right. And if we have a right, then we think we're entitled. And if we think we're entitled, then we think we're owed. If we don't understand that what God's about is this fabric of his people and we just obey a few laws but then spend the rest of our time trying to get all we can get, we want other people's stuff, their prestige, their privilege, their resources, their life, their happiness, their joy, their possessions, their identity, their looks, we want their ease, their, their week, their month, their year that they're having. We want all of it from all different people because we know what it means to lack and we're not going to stop until we are completely full up or satisfied, which can never happen. So we're always going to be focused on getting our share, which means everything. And we, we just want the stuff that will fill us and when we get filled, we'll have peace. Until then, we lack, and we have desire, and we envy, and we covet, and we think we deserve that fullness. And if we deserve it, we have a right to it. And if we have a right to it, then we're entitled. And if we're entitled, then God owes us something. That's how we get the idol of other people's stuff. Because if God owes us something, the predominant driving topic in our relationship with God is what? If somebody owes you money, what's in your head every time you're around them? If someone owes you work, if you're an employer, and someone owes, when someone owes you something, the dominant thing is, You've got it in a category, and you can smile at the person, but your driving thought is, you owe me something. You need to make good on this. You need to make good on it now. If you're not making good on this, then I have a right to hold you in contempt. We think we deserve, therefore we have a right, therefore we're entitled to having all this stuff. If we're entitled to it, God, the God up there, who's in control of things, owes it to us. And if God owes us stuff, then the stuff becomes bigger than God. It's the idol of other people's stuff. Now, here's where this shows up. So, 
if you flip right over in the Sermon on the Mount, the next thing Jesus talks about, a couple things down, is this. It's prayer. It's prayer. I, 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 I talked about prayer last week, and then had like 30 questions in Redux and 30 emails, and realized I didn't say enough about prayer to communicate well. So we, we get to communicate again today, okay? Listen. If in our heart, that's the equation, deserve, right, entitled, owed, what do you think our direct dialogue with God will predominantly look like? Gimme, 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 I need, I need, now, I'm, I can't wait, hurry, gimme, I want. It will all look or, or, or become request-driven. Now, requesting things from God isn't wrong. Um, Philippians says, present your requests before God with, with thanksgiving. And the peace of God that, that surpasses all understandings will guard your hearts and mind. What Paul is saying is, look, when you have a legitimate need, the kind of thing that's in God's will, when Jesus presented his request before God, he's on his knees in prayer and he's saying, God, if I can accomplish your will without being tortured, I'll, I'll opt for that. But not my will, but yours be done at the end of the day. Okay? And Paul is saying, look, present your request to God, and you can walk away and know that God's got it and that he's big, but at the end of the day, you're submitting to God's plan. And whatever God does, you know that God's in control, and you've got a peace that you are his that he's got you, that he's holding you, that you're not hidden from him, that you're there. So whatever happens, you can trust. That's what it means to live by faith, that it's all going to be good. God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. It doesn't mean he gives you every other person's stuff whenever you covet. All things work for good. Oh, I got so-and-so's car, and I got so-and-so's, you know what I mean? Like, it works for good in the sense that God will carry you. He's got you. Requests in and of themselves aren't bad. Our request, though, is we get in prayer and we're like, oh, I got a half hour prayer. <clears throat> what am I going to pray for? And we come up with things we didn't even know we need we, because that's our baseline for prayer. And Jesus says, this is how you're going to pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you'll have no other God before me, hallowed be your name. I'm not making light of who you are, your identity, your name. It's right along the Ten Commandments. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm not going to worship other gods. Give us today our daily bread, God, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation that we wouldn't covet, but deliver us from the evil one. It's praying the Ten Commandments. The heart of the Ten Commandments. And then it says this, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men when they're sin, in their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so Jesus' prayer here is all about community and health and relationship and goodness and restoring things and reconciling things. It's about the heart of the Ten Commandments. It's about this idea of what, what spirituality really should look like for God's people. Jesus just articulated it's in the heart. It's, it's the principle. Now here's how you should pray. If we really get this, our prayers are falling before God. Wherever we're at, we start with, all right, God, it's not easy, but you're God. Oh, please realign me. Please show me. Please tell me. Please, please help me be in the right place. Please, please help me put things in perspective. Please show me again that you really are big. Please show me that these other things in life really are small. Please help me because I don't want to forgive that person. They've destroyed my life. Um, th this is the heart of prayer. I care about prayer too much. This is what I meant last week. I, I care about prayer too much to waste time 
with low or weak or pseudo or false prayer. Jesus goes on to say, don't stand in in public to be seen by men. And don't, don't make prayer a device for your own agenda against, in some sense, the will of God. He's saying, man, make sure your heart's in the right place. I care too much about prayer to spend hours and hours in prayer meetings where my dominant thought is this. Ooh, I got I, I to gotta sneak attack prayer. I'm going to wait for the right moment, and it's going to be like 10 seconds. They expect like three minutes. My little part of prayer is like 10 seconds. Nobody saw that coming. And then someone cuts in on me, and it's like, ooh, don't show that you got cut in on. Show that you're cool. They cut in on your prayer. You said two words, and it made you feel silly, but just wait. Wait for the next time. Keep that same prayer in mind. It'll work. And then, like, a little bit later, the prayer meeting's still going. It's like, ooh, I got a good one now. I'm going to go three minutes. They're not expecting that. I'm going to use the word glory in it, too. That'll go over well, you know, and, oh, so-and-so said something really stupid. I'm going to bounce off that. And I'm going to pray for the right kind of things. And, look, you might have never done that. I've done that a lot. And I don't like myself when I do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, when I'm in a prayer meeting and I'm like, wow, this is just all about competition and other people's stuff and us and human dynamics. Like, I just... I want to vomit and then go find um, where Brandon Reynolds is praying or John Swanson is praying. And I want to sit there and I want that to, to just cleanse me out because those guys are just on fire for God, completely submitted to God, all in for God. And I love when group, this is when I love group prayer when group prayer lifts you up or teaches newer people how to pray or the combined fire ignites something. I'm not against group prayer and I'm not against prayer at all. I'm all for prayer where God is sovereign. I mean, am I making sense? Or do we... I mean, I talked about it for like an hour at Redux last week, so you can, you can watch Redux videos. But the idea is this. I love the people in this church, the mature Christians that are trying to grab other Christians and help them learn how to pray in group situations. That's not what I mean when I'm saying I'm against group prayer. Okay? There's a prayer group of guys meeting on Tuesday nights, and I've been praying for that prayer group because I literally think that prayer group could ignite this church. Ignite it. When I was younger and, and more immature than I am now, the, the dominant paradigm was always this. Like you have all these emotions and you want to get in front of a bunch of people and you realize how passionate we should be for God and you just want to yell all the time. What's wrong with us? I mean, there's some 20-year-old interns we've got right now that I, I see it in their eyes, man. They, they just, they have that, they just want to rip their clothes and start yelling, like, what's wrong with us? We should be so just passionate for God. And then I, I, I grew out of that and began to realize that just makes you weird, and then you don't have any friends, and it doesn't do any good. And then I began to realize Jesus always reasoned with people. He reasoned with them and showed them from Scripture. And the Bereans were mature and noble, it says in the book of Acts, because they took Paul's things and they'd look at Scripture and they're like, how does this fit? My, my college pastor, when I first got saved, taught me well. Ken, don't ever go to a church where they never look at what Scripture says. I love our elders because whatever the topic, we go, well, what does Scripture say? Jesus reasoned with people. And then the, the highest of all things that ignite and change and influence is prayer. Every revival in church history that, that's been able to be studied or documented where the Holy Spirit just moved was preceded by a time of unbelievable prayer, authentic prayer. 
Jesus praying for these people. Jesus praying in John 17 for his disciples and for the people that are going to come after them. The highest form of of trying to get God to move in radical ways is prayer. Absolutely not against prayer. I just pray at this church that when we pray by ourselves, when we get in groups and pray, that we would not settle for, for babbling on like the pagans do. That's Jesus' words, not mine. So in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, look, don't babble on like the pagans do, thinking their many requests are somehow better. And what he was basically saying is, is if you're mindlessly coming in and just reciting all these things, we pray pagan prayers a lot. If we're not really in tune with what God's doing and laying our, our lives before him, and we're just laying out all these requests because God owes us stuff, that's like the, the pagans in Jesus' day which would get there and they would just pray and pray and pray endlessly. And it's like the gods are smaller and so they need to be woken up or disturbed or challenged or whatever. And when we just keep reciting these requests over and over because God owes it to us and the, the fact that he owes us this is bigger in some sense than God, when we pray these things over and over, we're beginning to do this thing where we're like, i got to shake God. He needs to know what, I, what he owes me. And he hasn't been answering, and i got to shake him. And, and again, requests aren't wrong, but Jesus said, uh, God knows. He, he knows. The prayer of one righteous man is powerful and effective, James says, because of what's going on in the heart. Paul prayed, it says in Corinthians, he had this ailment, and he prayed like two, three times and then said, God knows. And he's decided to leave it. I'm cool with that. I'm made perfect in my weakness because God's grace is sufficient for me. God knows. When God is big enough, when we know that we've prayed in the right spirit, and we've laid it there and we've stepped back and said, not my will but yours be done. Whatever lot I receive in life, I'll accept I'm not going to envy someone else's lot or demand a better lot. Whatever is truly coming from you, God, I'll accept. Because I know that peace is going to come only from you, not from having everything filled up. Let's move along faster here. The, um, here's, when we begin to get this, we begin to see what maturity really looks like. This is really where we're at with our kids' ministry in a big way. This is where a big part of parenting is at. You begin to teach kids obedience and duty. You obey because God says. And then you begin to show them later, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. You begin to show them when you obey, which is your duty, look at the good that comes from that. Look at the, the, the down chain, the causal sequence that, that your obedience has, leads to health. Look at, look at when you loved that other kid or, or when we, we gave that gift that, that things were, were healthier and the joy that came about. Look at, look at how obedience led to goodness. And then when, when they're in their 20s, this is what we're hoping for, that they understand that it's it's right and true that God knows what he's doing. That's our biggest struggle. God, do you really know what you're doing? And when we go, you know what? God said to do these things. It's, this is how he wants me to live. And we begin to learn to obey that. Then we begin to see like, wow, this mess that's all around me gets worse through sin and better through righteousness. And, and we begin to connect those two. And we begin to eventually get to a place where we're like, God knows what he's doing. I trust God. Even when I don't understand this pain or this thorn in my flesh or this problem or the fact that I don't have and other people do, even when I don't understand that, I walk by faith and I continue to obey. Why? 
Because I've seen over time and I believe deeply that God knows what he's doing. And so with our kids, we try and teach them virtue and obedience. And then we try and connect the dots. And eventually in their 20s, it's not that they have a Santa Claus God. And eventually when he's not giving them what they want, they go somewhere else to get other people's stuff. To compete well. To fill up the tank. This is really what, what the program is. Because, oh man, wish we could just be in Africa right now. You guys would be in for it like two hours plus. Three hours, four hours, doesn't matter. Um, I had it printed out on a piece of paper, but obviously I forgot to hit print. But, um, so I'll paraphrase rather than turn there. But in Romans, Paul talks about let no debt remain outstanding it's a fascinating statement. Why, why is that important that you don't leave debts outstanding? Because it's a part of relational thing. It's a part of society. It matters. He sent a slave back to his slave owner and, the, and wrote a letter asking the slave owner to legally release the slave. Paul was all about community and, and society being healthy. Just don't let any debt remain outstanding except, now here's the spirit of the whole thing, except the continuing debt to love one another. That's the whole spirit of this thing. You love other people. Jesus said this, uh, Matthew 22. He's like, he sums up the whole thing. The guy's talking about the law. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And then he sums it up and says, yeah, but the whole law and the prophets, you know, which is the greatest command, which is the next greatest command. And the whole law and the prophets is summed up in these two. Love God and love others. Love God and love others. So this heart thing we're talking about, having a happy heart, this spiritual thing we're talking about is cashed out in the word love. Now I want you to stick with me here, okay, because this is hugely important. What is the definition of love? What is the definition of love? We see us, Lewis, is, is sainthood status because better than anybody else, he, he saw the deceptive ways of how we twist love. You know how we define love? Because I want it so bad. A guy loves a girl. What, what does that love mean? He wants her so bad. I love video games. What does that mean? I like them so much. I love Thai food. I'll pay any amount of money for it. I, I, I desire and crave it so much. The strength of my appetite is how we define love. So I can, this is a, please, before you die, read C.S. Lewis's um, Till We Have Faces, okay? It's a fiction book, but this is the whole driving point, okay? We can literally devour people and think we're loving them. We can rip them out of where their life should be going or what's best for them because we want them here so bad. Parents that stifle their kids can devour them under the guise of love. Is it really true love? We Christians in sharing our faith can devour our unbelieving friend under the name of love, because we want so bad to win for them. Is that, are we getting there or is it still too complex? The height of my desire is love. And so when I act out to satisfy what I want, I can call that love. Because I'm satisfying I, something I desired so much. I'm satisfying love. But the, the unbelievable thing about love is what? Love has no greater expression than that you would lay down your life for another. See, the heart of love isn't about my wants. Covet Desire and love are real close cousins in that kind of uh, vernacular, aren't they? True love, though, the definition of it is 
sacrifice for the greatest good of the other. I love you so much that I'm willing to forego my desires. That I'm willing to lessen my lot in life. Parents are a great example of true love. You get no gratitude. And you sacrifice all the time. Are you try- this is... You get, this, is, this one's for free because it's so important. But love is not the height of our desires. So, so, so hang on to that, and I want to give you a story. I was talking with a friend of mine. He didn't give me permission to tell the story. That's okay because I'm not using his name. But uh, a great guy who's, who's happening to go through um, AA right now because we all come out of our stuff, and we all try and patch things back together, right? Okay? And... And God is becoming a big part of that for him. And immediately you begin to go, I need God because I couldn't do this without God. And then immediately you have what emotion? I feel guilty because that feels selfish or wrong. You understand what I'm saying? I'm using God for my advantage. And so we talked about this, and I, I, I tried to make a distinction. I said, oh, boy, you just put your finger on one of the greatest misunderstandings in Christianity. The difference between self-interest and self-ish. One smells bad. What? Anyways, um, selfish. So I, <laughs> I have little kids, right? Um, self-interest is not wrong. God says to us, I command you to worship me. I have a lot of friends that struggle with that. Seems like God's being selfish. Here's the definition of selfish, though. It's selfish if it's to your advancement at the expense of the other. So God commanding we worship him is a lot like Delta Airlines saying, put your oxygen mask on first before you put your child's oxygen mask on. Selfish? No. Because that kid is going to, there's nothing good that happens if you go black. God is saying, man, if I'm not at the center, everything else deteriorates. You've got to keep me here. Self-interest, yes. Selfish, no, because we all benefit. Just like the planets benefit from the sun being in the middle. Does that make sense? So when we're Christians, we begin to realize what I'm saying we should teach our kids. We begin to realize what a wonderful, easy, light thing this is. If you feel guilty coming out of Sunday mornings, man, Ken just lays it on thick, and he's always bossing me around, making me feel guilty, and it just ah, feels so heavy. Go to another church, because I'm doing something wrong. Okay, Because grace feels light. It's your pleasure. When I give to my kids, they're like, thanks, Dad. I say, my pleasure. It wasn't to sacrifice. It was my, my happiness, my joy to give to you, right? And when we understand grace and we understand the goodness of God and we understand what comes from obedience to God, it's not duty anymore. It's delight. It's, God, I delight to follow you. And it's light. And so if there's grace in this church and you understand where God is calling you to be and you're experiencing the blessing of that, the joy and the peace, then it is your delight. It is in your self-interest to obey God. Jesus says that in John 15, 9, 9 through 11. Um, obey, obey my commands like I've obeyed the Father's commands and remain in his love. Why, why do I say this? So that your joy my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. When you obey me and you're with me, it's to your self-interest. And Jesus jumps up and down and gets super stoked and excited because you have joy and he likes you. And when we like people, we want them to have joy. Okay, Self-interest is in the interest of Christians. And it leads you towards God and obedience with God. Selfish is where we take love and it masquerades under our appetites, our wants, our desires at the expense of others, our competitiveness, our breaking of shalom, our taking, our coveting, our envying, all hides or can hide under the the word love, and that is selfish. 
selfish. Please act in your own self-interest. And please understand what selfishness is and that it's not in the spirit of this program that God has for his children and the joy of us all building a healthy community where there's the presence of goodness. Let me uh, close this down here. The idol of other people's stuff. When we want more, when we care less, when we ignore responsibility, when we don't really know God because we're seeing our desires and the fulfillment of our desires, there's a really amazing thing. First John 4, 7, and 8, I won't read it right now, talks about if you don't love your brother, if you don't have love, you don't know God because God is love unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. If you don't get the program that God knows what he's doing, you don't really know God. He's an operational device for you. You're treating God in an operational capacity. He exists to serve. Prayer exists to present my requests. It's an operational thing. In, in Philippians, we see, we just, this is again, this is printed out. I'm an idiot. It would have been quicker. Philippians 2, and some of you might know this, but we end up talking about Jesus, but look how it starts. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, my fellow Christians, if you have any comfort from His love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you're with God, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. True love. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of, your, of others. If you're only looking to your own inter- interests, you become selfish. If you're looking to your own self-interest when, it, when it's for the greater good and you're willing to lay that down when you need to, then you're Obeying this, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then it goes on and gives this wonderful creed about Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Listen to what it says in James. James chapter 3. There's two kinds of wisdom Again, that art form of living well. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Galatians, this fascinating book all about the law coming back into the church and Paul's freaking out and saying, who cut in on you? Like who took the easy, wonderful idea of grace and God and brought this stale religion back, the law, legalism, who brought that back to you? And he's, he's going through this and he comes down to this and he says, this is life by the Spirit. And he starts talking about, right before it, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. The Ten Commandments again. The spirit of the Ten Commandments again. And he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... 
the fruit of the Spirit when you're with God, when you have the right kind of things and you get that God knows what he's doing and you're living by faith and you have a happy heart and, and you and Justin are getting along and you can be in his family. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. They're never wrong. Why are they never wrong? Because never would that list of things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, never would they tear apart the fabric of society, God's family, God's children. Yet always they build up and create what God desired for his family. So they're never wrong. They're always right. We can pray those things. You know how God tests us and grows us? Um, this is important. God always tests us by taking something away. We, we want our relationship with God to grow by him giving. If God would just answer that prayer, my relationship with God would grow. If God would just show me, my relationship with God would grow. If God would just make it easier, my relationship with God would grow. It's never how it works. God always tests our faith and obedience by taking something away. It exposes us, and God then shines light and says, it's real simple here. What are you serving, and who are you going to follow? Now that we've stripped it down, and you really have that choice I pray that God would bring this church, you, 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 all of you, that desire something more, that he would bring your faith to a moment of crisis so that you can once and for all settle who you're going to serve, where you're going to go. That's going to happen. It might be happening now. It might have started today. It might have started last year. That it's going to happen if it happens by God taking away something, not by adding. He exposes selfishness not by playing Santa Claus, but by stepping back and letting you see selfishness. God tests our faith by taking something away. So the, Grace and Tom are going to come out, and I just want to say this. When we think we deserve, then we have a right then we feel entitled, then we feel owed, and then our attitude is that God is going to have to serve us. So, when God has to serve you, I know what's going on in your heart. When you serve others, I know what's going on in your heart too. Let me give it to you. You care, you see the need, You, have, you, you sense the responsibility and the possibility. And there's grace. When, when you're signing up to serve at church or in town or in your family or with your mother who is losing her mind and needs you to be there 20 hours a week and you're going to honor your mother and your father. When you serve, when you have a heart of service, when you, when you consider others' interests greater than your interests, when you have this, I know you get this. When I, in my heart, am expecting and demanding God to serve me, when I'm in prayer groups that have that tone, I know really what's going on at the heart of things. So here's the deal. We started this, this uh, whole series, the Big God series, by praying a prayer. I want to want what you want for me. God, I want to want what you want for me. I'm willing to accept my lot. I'm willing to accept your will. I'm willing to let you be sovereign. My agenda is to serve you, not to get more, not to have other people's stuff. Now, I just want you to, if you prayed that then, if you want to pray it now, this is the cry that I would want for Antioch this morning, that we would want to want what God wants for us.
Can you say that with me? I want to want what for us. I need to say it again because I screwed it up. I want to want what God wants for us. Father God, we want to want. Our faith is weak. Please help our unbelief. But we really desire that you'd strip it all away so that we would just have you. We want to want what you want for us. We want you to be God. We want you to be king. We want you to be Lord. We want you to be sovereign. We compete for that. Other things compete for that. But God, we want to want what you want for us. We want to want you to be big. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.